Uh, we've been studying First Peter in a series we're calling Weird, and we've been looking at some tough passages. And the word weird, we said, means of supernatural origin. Uh, it means uncanny. It means it refers to things not of this world. And, and we as believers are to live lives that are weird to the world around us. And suffering and suffering well is, is obviously one of those things that is weird. Rejoicing in our suffering is weird. See, seeing that God is accomplishing something that is ultimately good even in our suffering is weird. And understanding that can also be weird. You know, the, the idea of suffering, the idea of submission, those things are weird to the world. The idea that we would follow and give allegiance to a God who not only allows that, but who at times orchestrates that would be weird. That we would continue to give an allegiance to that God? The world, the world, the world see, sees God and, and sees Him really as this, this just genie in a bottle type of thing that, you know what, come to God and get, get, get. And, and the reality is the Bible says those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. And the Bible says that God is still good in that and loves us in that. And, and that's weird. And, and, and what we've seen in the past few weeks about submitting to government and submitting to that, that is even bad and submitting to bosses and authority that is over us that, that, that are even bad and yet doing that willingly, that's weird. But yet there's a, there's a reason God calls us to that and there's a purpose. And what we see today in verses 21 through 25 is that reason it's that purpose. And, and this is huge. We have in Christ an example, an example for how we are to submit, but also how we are to suffer unjustly. As, as John was praying this morning, I thought about Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured this cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. I, I dare say Peter is saying almost the same thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you suffering unjustly? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you enduring something unjustly? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you suffering at the hands of, of people and you're innocent? Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. And he says it in verse 21. You have been called for this very purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example. Leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And, and what I want to do is that what I believe Peter did and and, and I want us to help us to understand our own suffering. I want to give us a, a better understanding of our own suffering, of especially our unjust suffering. By looking at Christ's unjust suffering, as Peter does. Right in the middle of this section, Peter throws Christ as our example there. And you'll see on your, as your main point is just that we are to be encouraged encouraged in our own unjust suffering by reminding ourselves of Christ and His sufferings, being the supreme example. None of, us, none of us will suffer unjustly the way that Christ suffered unjustly. None of us. 
He was 100% innocent. He suffered for the sins of other people. We, we can't say that. We're not 100% innocent. Now, we may be innocent in the sense in which we're suffering, but we're not 100% innocent. All of Christ's sufferings, they were without cause. And again, keep this in mind as Peter puts this example out here in the context. Peter is writing to encourage believers who, it, who in this case were suffering unjustly. They were suffering simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. They weren't suffering because they were, be, they were humans, that, meaning they weren't suffering illness. They weren't suffering the aging process. They weren't suffering from cancer, although there are times where it would be difficult to distinguish the suffering. In this case, that's not why they were suffering. It wasn't the consequence of someone's poor decisions, their own or others. That's not why they were suffering. This suffering came about simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Simply because they were followers. Simply because they had aligned themselves with Christ. And Peter uses this section, verses 21 through 25, to encourage them, to encourage them to keep on keeping on, to encourage them in how to suffer well. And he holds up Jesus as the supreme example. And again, all of this is in the context of, of what we saw last week in verse 20. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. You're not looking for the eject cord. You're not looking to, to get out of it as quick as possible. You're not looking to rush through it. You patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Unjust suffering, when handled rightly by a follower of Jesus Christ, by God's children, finds favor with God. And Peter, what he does here to encourage us is he offers us six truths to help us understand. That's the fill-in there, to understand our own suffering. But it's through seeing Christ's suffering. I, I want to show those to us today, but then I want to bring it home real quick. and, and uh, Well, not necessarily quickly. I don't know that I do anything quickly when it comes to the Word of God. But um, I want us to have a, a right perspective on our own sufferings. And then I want us to take the Lord's Supper together as a family. And, and Because I want us, in response to seeing Christ's suffering in our own, I want us to contemplate our own lives. In response to what we see and hear today in the Word of God, I want us to contemplate our own lives. And I want us to ask ourselves some, some hard questions. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering again that Christ was crucified. He was crucified as a criminal for sins that he did not commit. Sins that you and I did commit. I want us to contemplate that. Understand our own suffering, but understand what God is accomplishing through it. So real quickly, let's, let's get going. Verse 21, six truths to help us understand our own suffering. The, again, these would have encouraged Peter's readers in their own suffering. And, and first thing he says here in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. First thing I want you to understand is Christ's sufferings were divinely appointed. This was not an accident. His sufferings didn't just fall upon him. He did not stumble into them. 
Christ's sufferings were divinely appointed. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, for I lay it down according to my own will. Look, Jesus suffered unjustly according to the will of his Father. It was divinely appointed. It was under the sovereignty. It was under the goodness of God. Jesus took on flesh. He became a human for the very purpose that he would die as a ransom payment for the sins of God's creation. Matthew 20, 28 says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? He came to die. He came to to reveal the Father. You look at John 1, he came to reveal the Father, but ultimately he came to die. And he came to die for sins and the penalty of sins that he did not commit. He came to make reconciliation available between God and sinful man, his creation. Reconciliation is available. We'll see that in a minute. But but there was divinely appointed. Jesus did not, man did not take Jesus' life for him. Jesus gave his life up for man. It was divinely appointed. And, And this ought to encourage us when we suffer. In the midst, again, in the midst of Jesus' suffering, what was God accomplishing? He was accomplishing salvation. He was accomplishing a way for sinful humanity to be rightly reconciled back to a holy God. My point in saying that is unjust suffering does not mean that you and I, believer, are doing something wrong. That's the way the world sees it. You suffer unjustly, okay, well, you know, it's just like in John 8, the man born blind. What was the first thing they said? Who sinned? Who sinned? This man sinned or did his parents sin? That's, that's the way the world, that's the way even many Christians view unjust suffering. Okay, okay, uh, there's got to be sin in the camp. Where's Achan? Where's Achan? Listen, there's always sin in our camp. Until we're resurrected, there will always be sin in our camp, unfortunately. That doesn't mean we make light of it. That doesn't mean we coddle it. But listen, we live in a fallen world. And unjust suffering doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that it's outside the will of God. It doesn't mean that God has lost control or that God has failed us. It was God's will that Jesus die to make a way for sinners to be rightly forgiven. That was his will. And to suffer unjustly. To suffer for sins that he did not commit. And as such, Jesus was very clear. We could go on and on and on with passages where Jesus made it very clear to his disciples in the same way that, they, that they're going to treat me, listen to me, they're going to treat you. A servant is not above his master, he said, over and over and over again. And you see it on your handout. This should serve as a reminder that our suffering as believers on behalf of Christ is not accidental, nor is it worthless. It's not meaningless. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, listen to what Paul writes. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Listen, so that no one 
would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Believer's suffering has always been the case. Listen, we're in war. We're at war. We're in a foreign land. There's going to be suffering. And how do we respond? It's not accidental. Again, 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We can go to Luke 9, we can go to Luke 10, you go to 21, Matthew 24, John 15, you can go to Acts 14.22, it says, through much tribulation we will enter eternal life. Acts 14.22, through much tribulation. To follow Christ is to follow a path of unjust, that will include unjust suffering. It will include unjust suffering. Look, our Savior was crushed for our iniquity. And that's really this whole passage. Peter is, is giving an explanation. He's going back to Isaiah 53. And he's drawing upon that for the New Testament, for these, for these followers that, that he's writing to, going back to Isaiah 53, where Jesus was, is pictured as the suffering servant. And Paul himself uh, would have said this in, in Philippians 3.10. He says that I may know Christ, not only in the power of his resurrection, but what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Divinely appointed. Our, our Savior suffered? Listen to me. We will suffer, believer, if we follow closely, if we are clearly identified as a follower of Jesus Christ in a foreign world, we'll suffer. And, and that's according, again, to the will of God, divinely appointed. But not only are sufferings divinely appointed, Christ's sufferings were on behalf of others. He suffered, look at, since Christ also suffered for you. He didn't suffer for his own sin. He suffered for your sin and my sin. You go to 2 Corinthians 5.21, it makes that very clear. He suffered on behalf of others. And the word there, the seminary word, if you will, is, is vicarious. It, it, it means on behalf of another. Christ suffered because of your sin and mine sin. God made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, it says, to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might rightly become the righteousness of God. Sin demanded a penalty that was death. Jesus paid the penalty so that God could rightly forgive you and me of our sin. Why? Because the penalty was paid. He suffered on behalf of others. I think about 2 Corinthians, even our own, our own suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says, Comfort others with the comfort that you've been comforted with. 
It's very possible God is walking you through something right now, believer, so that you then could walk through some you then could walk somebody else through that very same thing. That could be the why. Why God am I going through this? Because in 6 months, 8 months, a year, you're going to be walk you're going to have somebody in your path that is going through the same thing and you can comfort you can comfort them with the encouragement and the comfort that God has offered you that otherwise you would not be able to encourage and comfort them with. And in that sense, God is good. I mean, when we've passed through our own trials and God is found to be true to what he says, we then are in a position to offer somebody else comfort who is going through that very same trial. First-hand experience of sustaining grace. Comfort others with the comfort you've been comforted with. He's kept you through pain. He's reshaped you. He is shaping you into his image. Again, the grace that God gives you is to be given away to others. It's to be comforted. You're to use it to comfort others. And what Pete, you see it on your handout. Peter is offering a deeper and fresh motive to them for unjust suffering. Again, by looking to Christ's sufferings. Understand what God accomplished through Christ's unjust sufferings. And he comforts them. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he offers this deeper motive as well. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Do you you see what God is doing in our suffering? He's loosening our grip on the things of this world, and he's tightening our grip on the things of eternity, the things that really matter. He's producing a hope. While we look, not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Don't, our living hope is not in things that are temporal. Our living hope is in that which is eternal. It's out of this world. And we can be encouraged as well. And we can encourage others in our own sufferings. Not, but not only were Christ's sufferings divinely appointed, not only were they on behalf of others, Christ's sufferings, number three, provide us an example to be followed in our own sufferings. Look at this. Leaving you, verse 21, an example for you to follow in his steps. The word here for example, it literally means a pattern to follow. And I thought about this last week during the VBS meeting. Stacy Wilson, you had a little, little uh, dry erase board and there were letters dotted letters for her son to trace to learn how to write his letters. That's, that, that is where we, we get that from this word. That's literally what he's talking about. Christ's life is a pattern to be followed, to be traced by you and I. That's literally what he means here with Christ's sufferings. It's a model for you to trace over and over and over again to learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. Just as a child would trace A, B, C, over and over to learn the alphabet, Christ's sufferings are that model to be followed. We are to trace Jesus' life, believer, even in suffering. Still keep tracing His life. Christ is our model. And you, you see it on your handout. What is Peter saying? We're commanded to walk through suffering in the same way as Jesus walked through his own suffering. That's why Peter shows this is how Christ suffered. Are you enduring an unjust government? Look to Christ. Are you enduring an unjust boss? Look to Christ. In two weeks, are you, endure, are you enduring an unjust 
Husband, look to Christ. Are you dealing with an unjust wife? Husbands, look to Christ. Here's the model for you to follow. Here's the model. And again, the word here literally means to follow closely. Not, not at a distance so that nobody... This isn't like you, you know, like you did it as a kid when you went to the mall with your parents. You'd fall back just enough so that you, had, you could see your parents. But if your friends happened to see you, they wouldn't know that you weren't cool enough to be at the mall without your parents. So you'd be just far enough back to where, look, I see my parents and they can see me, but if somebody sees me, they're not going to associate me with those two old people up there. Look, that, that's, how, that's how kids do. They, don't, they get too cool to be, be hanging around their parents sometimes. And, and you know what you'd say? Are you following your parents? The, the kid would say, yeah, I'm following my parents. But you're not following close enough to be identified with your parents. I, I might throw that out brave just in a spirit of just, hey, let's challenge. Are you, how closely are you following Christ? You, you may say, I got my eyes on him, but do, does the world know that? When the world looks at your life, do they identify you readily with your Savior? Are you following so closely that when they see the Savior and they see your life, they see the link? They see that you're connected? See, because I can follow far, far away in, in my own mind. I can think I'm following far, far away. And I'm like, hey, I see my parents way up there. But nobody connects me to my parents because I'm so far away. That's not the word here. The word here is follow closely. Be readily identified. That's not how we follow Christ. So far away that, you know what, I know some truths about him, but nobody connects the dots to connect me to him. See, when we follow like that, we're doing that because we are wanting to avoid suffering. You know, just like the kid at the mall, he, follows, he or she follows that way because he don't want his friends to see him and know that he can't come to the mall without, without his parents. And Peter says, follow closely. We, we follow so closely that the suffering that befalls Christ, guess what? It befalls us as well. When the world shoots at Christ, guess what? They shoot at us as well. Why? Because we're in the same circle. We're right there with him. That's how we're to follow closely. And that's the model. He says, listen to, listen to the description. He says you're an example. And then Peter gives some very clear ways that Christ suffered. And listen to me. All of these are going to be contrary to our flesh. Trust me. They're going to be contrary. To, but that's the whole point. That's what makes it weird. That's what makes it supernatural. Listen, if I can do it myself and I can do it in the flesh, I, why, do I need to, why do I need a Savior? That's the whole point. God is going to allow us to walk through stuff and put us through stuff that causes us to rely on Him. Therefore, He gets the glory. And look at what He says. Just, again, these are going to, I'm just on the front end, they're going to, your flesh is going to fight these. Look at verse 22. While He suffered unjustly, look what it says. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Christ suffered innocently. He did nothing wrong. He didn't revile in return. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't go around clear, claim, you know, 
pleading his case with all his buddies to rally the troops. He didn't talk negatively about, no, he suffered quietly. He didn't sin. I mean, that's going to be a big deal when we get down again into, into chapter 3, and he says, wives, went over your husbands without a word. Again, look back to Christ. He's our example. There's a context for what we read there in chapter 3. He, he did it innocently. Listen, suffering is not an excuse to sin. Suffering is not an excuse to take matters into your hand and do whatever you need to do and the ends begin to justify the means. I Listen, I, I live there with you. All of a sudden things get hectic and you're like, hey, let's just do whatever's natural to get out of this thing and then we'll get back. No, no, no. That's not what Christ did. It says he continually kept entrusting himself to the Father and he suffered innocently. But, but he also suffered patiently. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But listen, and kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He, pay, he suffered patiently. He didn't defend. He didn't retaliate. He simply submitted. Listen, and I'm not, I'm not talking, that doesn't mean you take abuse. That's illegal. Abuse is illegal. Let's clear that up. There's this whole thing going on. Uh, Y'all may or may not know about it, but some some things in the Southern Baptist Convention and some people have made some statements and and they're dealing with the consequence of those statements, whether they were made or not. I don't know. Our media can do whatever they want with statements. But uh, but just saying, oh, well, you Christians just tell wives to sit there and be abused. You didn't hear that from me. That's illegal. When we study chapter 3, Wives, if your husband is abusive, go to the authorities. Go to the authorities. There's consequences. This is talking about verbal retaliation. He didn't retaliate that way. And again, Peter would have had an eyewitness account. Don't forget, Peter had an eyewitness account to Jesus' sufferings. What he's saying is when Jesus suffered unjustly, he didn't lash out. He didn't try to verbally make a defense. He didn't try to, he didn't talk about the other people. He didn't go around rallying. No, no. He, he kept entrusting himself to the Father. And, and letter C is just that. He trusted God while he suffered. God, G, Christ was confident in God's character and his ability to, to vindicate himself even in his sufferings. That, that's what Peter said in, in verse 19 of chapter 2. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. He cared about the Father's glory more than his own reputation. Listen, we can trust God even in suffering. Even in unjust suffering, you can still trust the character of God. Again, he's our example. But, but also he holds up in verse 24, Christ's sufferings were experienced because of our sin and not his. Again, this picks up on what Peter earlier said and what I said, but it makes it very clear. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The word bore there is a technical term and it literally points, it's the word that was used in regards to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. 
Jesus Christ's death was an offering for the penalty and the payment of our sin. It was a debt payment. Jesus Christ bore our sin. He took the blame for our sin. He suffered. Galatians 3.13 says that he became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree, it says there in Galatians 3.13. He literally became a curse for us. I mean, he took the blame. Again, this is the pinnacle of unjust suffering. And you see there on your handout, Christ's substitutionary and sacrificial death. What does this mean? It had significance for everyone. Again, he says our sins. There is one way for, for ma- sinful man and a holy God to be reconciled, and that is through Jesus Christ. One way. Christ suffered due to our sin. He suffered unjustly due to our sin. But, but not, only, not only it was because of our sin... Another aspect that we need to understand about Christ's suffering is is that it brings healing. It brings healing so that we might die to sin, in verse 24, and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Spiritually, you you are healed through, through belief in Christ. You're brought back into right relationship where there was, where there was alienation, where there was, where there was animosity. The Bible says there's enmity between a sinner and a holy God. Where there was enmity through faith in Christ, the repenting of our sins, through understanding the gospel and, and submitting yourself to that gospel through faith, reconciliation takes place where there was enmity. Healing. The healing of that relationship. Where, where, where sin once reigned, where death now reigns, Forgiveness reigns and eternal life reigns. And what Peter says there, you see it on your handout, is that every believer that they must allow their suffering to be transformed by a new relationship with Christ. It's redemption. God is redeeming what Satan had meant for harm and destruction. God redeems that. There's healing by his wounds. And again, that's weird. To say that by somebody else's death, by somebody else's wounds, I'm healed. And yet it's real. It's true. Christ offers healing, but it was through wounding. Through our, through our wounding sometimes, God brings about healing. And spiritual healing, ultimately what he's talking about, only comes through Christ. But verse 25 it gives the sixth thing that we need to understand about Christ's unjust suffering. It says Christ's sufferings made a way for reconciliation to take place between God and His creation. It says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Christ frees us from an aimless, wandering life. He has brought us back into the fold. He's reconciled us to God, to Himself. But it came through unjust suffering. And listen, no matter what, no matter what, no matter our suffering, we have a trustworthy protector in Christ. Psalm 3, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, the glory, the lifter of my head. Psalm 146, he's a, I mean, Psalm 46, he's a refuge and strength. Be encouraged. When you're struggling and you're suffering unjustly, look to Christ. This would have been a huge encouragement to Peter's readers. Look to Christ. 
And again, Peter holds up Christ as the supreme, supreme, you see it on your handout, example of undeserved suffering and yet the benefit that it brings to others. And again, this, this is, go down to verse 1 of chapter 3. I can't, I, I say this, we, we've got to get this in our hearts. Go down to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Go back to 21, that's the key verse. In the same way that Christ suffered, you wives be willing to suffer. Go to, okay, you wives say, well, why are you picking on me? Go to verse 7. You husbands, in the same way. Husbands, you're dealing with an unruly wife? Look to Christ. Wives, you're dealing with an unruly husband? Look to Christ. Supreme example for both. You're dealing with an authority, a governing authority that you can't stand? Look to Christ. You're dealing with a boss that you can't stand, that is, that is treating you poorly simply because you're, again, like we said last week, not treating you poorly because you have a bad work ethic or you do bad work, treating you poorly because you're a Christian. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. If we're to see ourselves rightly, if we're to understand this rightly, we must see Christ and his sufferings rightly. We'll never understand our own sufferings rightly if we don't first look to Christ's and understand his rightly. It's a right view of God, a right view of, of Christ, a right view of, of suffering. And again, that's our living hope. Again, verse, chapter 1, verse 3. The basis for everything in our lives, Christ. And I want to I drill this down real quick to help us really understand and, and really get a picture of our own sufferings. Because I, what Peter writes here, what Paul writes, and we're going to look at, can give us an, a real understanding. Our unjust suffering can begin to take on a whole new meaning if we would first see Christ's sufferings rightly, but also understand our role that we play in that today and our own sufferings. Every single one of the, the characteristics that we just listed with regards to Christ's sufferings can play out in our own lives in, in some way. Not that, we, not that I save people, I'm not saying that, but that our sufferings are used by God to accomplish sometimes other people's salvation and bring them to Christ. And we're ambassadors. We, we exist on behalf of our King. And here's where I say that. In Colossians 1.24, here's why I say this. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let that sink in for a second. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm simply doing my part in my own body, which is the, uh, on behalf of the body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, before your mind wonders, I want, you to help, I want to help you understand that and see your role. Huge statement for Paul to make. I mean, what Paul says here in, verse 20, in chapter 1, verse 24 of Colossians is unthinkable if we don't get this right. And what he says, you'll see it on your handout. Paul gives us a motive for willingly suffering, even unjustly, so that it will be used to advance the gospel. Our own salvation was accomplished through unjust suffering, and it's the same for others. Paul is not belittling the all-sufficiency or the atoning work of Christ. Our sufferings do not add to the worth 
of Christ or through the work there, but rather simply, listen, they extend my suffering is used by God to extend Christ's sufferings to the very ones in which they were intended to be extended to. That's, that's what Paul is saying. What, what is lacking in Christ's sufficiency and Christ's work, what, what's, I'm sorry, what is lacking in the work of Christ is not sufficiency, it's not worth. What is lacking is the delivery to the people who it was intended to be delivered to. That makes sense? It's not about worth. It's not about value. It's about extending them to the ones in which he died to save. And that's where our sufferings come into play. We, you and I, believer, we're ministers. We're ambassadors who, are, who carry the infinite worth and sufficiency of Christ's sufferings to the world, even through our own afflictions. Please, please see your role here. Please, please see the, the, the next step, if you will, of your salvation. It wasn't to get saved and then to go live however you want to live. It was that you would be saved and then you would be an ambassador of Christ and you would carry that gospel message to the others around you that need to be saved, even through affliction. And you, you see it on your handout. Our own unjust sufferings complete Christ's unjust sufferings by extending them to the people whom Jesus died to save. And, and Paul gives us a very, what I believe, to be a very clear picture of this through his own life. And in, and in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is in jail. And the Philippian church had, had gathered an offering for Paul. So Paul is in jail. Over here they have this offering. What's the problem? How are they going to get the offering to Paul? Paul's here, the offering's here. How are they going to get the two? That's where Epaphroditus comes in. And Epaphroditus steps up in chapter 2, and he says, look, I'll risk my life. It says there that he risked his life. I will risk my life, and I will take, the God, I will take this offering from the church here to Paul here. And, and again, he, he, Paul talks about this in chapter 2, verse 25. A fellow worker, that Epaphroditus was a, a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger. And, and in the process of this, Epaphroditus became sick, even to the point of death. And look in, in chapter 2, verse 30. This is what Paul says about Epaphroditus. Philippians 2, verse 30. Because he came close to death, listen, for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You see where Paul is saying almost the exact same thing about Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.30 as he said in Colossians 1.24, that I may fill up what is lacking. What was lacking in their gift to Paul? A delivery. What was lacking was the transportation of that gift from Philippi to over here where Paul is in prison. It was the presentation of the gift. It was getting it to Paul. That, that's exactly our role in the advancement of the gospel. God has prepared a love offering so that sins could be rightly forgiven, that sins could be atoned for, that they could be forgiven through Christ's death. It, in and of itself, Christ's work is totally sufficient. It's not lacking anything except a delivery boy or a delivery girl. 
What it's lacking is an Epaphroditus. So what God does is he, by his grace, he saves you and I. And he commissions us with the task of delivering the gospel to other people. To delivering the gift, to delivering the atoning sacrifice of Christ to others. Even to the point of risking our own lives. Even to the point of death. That God's call on your life and my life is that we would make a personal presentation of his gift to those around us in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our athletic teams. That's our role. And listen, when you do that, it's there that you will run into suffering and unjust suffering. If you keep quiet and you don't do that, listen to me, you'll avoid suffering. Because it's the presentation of the gospel. It's standing in front of someone and saying there is one way for sinners to be reconciled to God and it's through Jesus Christ. You just eliminated every other false religion in the world. That brings unjust suffering. But if we stay quiet and we get saved and we just sit in our houses and we live to ourselves and we make everything about ourselves and we stay quiet about the gospel, we won't suffer. We won't. Until we're the Epaphroditus that takes the gift to the enemy in Rome, then you'll suffer. That makes sense? Do you see how we fill up what is lacking? Do you see where our sufferings come into context? That's what God has called us to. He's commissioned us to take his sufferings to a lost world. To take his unjust sufferings to the very ones whom he suffered unjustly for to save. And you see it on your handout. God intends for the sufferings of Christ to be presented, presented is the word, to the world through the sufferings of his people. Through how we submit to sorry government, maybe. Maybe your attitude is, I hate the government. Submit. Oh, I hate my boss. Submit. I hate this woman you gave me. Submit. I hate this man you gave me. Submit. Suffer. For the glory of Christ. And in doing so, you present the gospel. That's the context. Not just, for, not just to do it, it's to advance the gospel. God means for the church, his body, to be willing to suffer as a means of extending the gospel. So that when we proclaim the gospel, people will see in us the marks of the cross in our own lives. They'll see the wounds that we've shared on behalf to get the gospel to them. And God will use that to open their hearts of people who are willingly who willingly suffer on behalf of others that's what Christ did and we reveal his own sufferings through our own sufferings that's the context how slaves and wives and husbands and and all these people how they advanced the gospel it was through unjust suffering Paul himself says in Galatians 6:17 that I bear the, on my body, the marks of Jesus. I, I asked myself that, and I would ask you that. You got any scars where someone said, hey, what happened to you? And the answer is the gospel advancement. The answer is Jesus. I got scars on my body, but you know what the answer was to those are? Stupidity. Dumb. 
Oh, I jumped out of some bleachers. I broke my arm, two plates, 13 screws. Got a pole. I mean, I got all kinds of scars where I had stitches. But it, it wasn't, you know, when someone asked, hey, what happened there? There's a story. Paul's life, you know what they say? Hey, Paul, what happened there? The gospel. Hey, Paul, what happened there? The gospel. Go read 2 Corinthians 11. Paul takes his shirt off and there's lashings up and down his back. Hey, what happened there, Paul? Oh, I got, I got, I got beat up because I was sharing the gospel. Hey, Paul, where were you for all those months? Oh, I was shipwrecked in the advancement of the gospel. Hey, Paul, where you been? I've been in prison because of the advancement of the gospel. Do, do you see how our sufferings are willingness to suffer? You see the context? Whether it's government, whether it's your employer, whether it's your spouse... And again, I'm not talking about physical I am not talking about physical abuse. If there's something illegal going on, that's why we have a that's why we have police. Uh, Dwayne, yesterday I, I send out my sermon to to a group on Thursdays, and some of them use them in, in the class, and others, you know, read over them and help me and say, "Hey, you may want to say this differently or whatever. Just help me." Um, he wrote back and said, "Chris." Uh, look, he included a, a devotional from Oswald Chambers that he had just received, and it fit. And it was from the context of Matthew 5.39. And listen to what it says in Matthew 5.39. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. That's weird. That's weird. And listen to what Oswald Chambers, he... There's a reason he has a lot of books in print and I don't. I'm going to read what he says here because he says it so much better. But listen to this. This verse, this verse reveals the humiliation of being a Christian. In the natural realm, if a person does not hit back, it is because he is a coward. But in the spiritual realm, it is the very evidence of the Son of God in him if he does not hit back. When you are insulted, you must not only not resent it, but you must make it an opportunity to exhibit the Son of God in your life. And you cannot imitate the nature of Jesus. It is either in you or it is not. A personal insult becomes an opportunity for a saint to reveal the incredible sweetness of the Lord Jesus. The teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is not do your duty, but is in effect do what is not your duty. It is not your duty to go the second mile or to turn the other cheek. But Jesus said that if we're his disciples, we will always do these things. We will not say, oh, well, I just can't do any more. And I've been so misrepresented and so misunderstood. Every time I insist on having my own rights, I hurt the son of God. While in fact, I can prevent Jesus from being hurt if I will take the blow myself. This is the real meaning of filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He builds the devotion on Colossians 1.24 that I shared. A disciple realizes that it is his Lord's honor that is at stake in his life, not his own. He goes on to say, Never look for righteousness in the other person, but never cease to be righteous yourself. We are always looking for justice, yet the essence of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is... Never look for justice, but never cease to give it. My, my challenge is this. 
And I want us to take the Lord's Supper in response to this, and I realize we'll, we'll go long, but I, I want to I do this. If your faith is never challenged, and our deacons, y'all can go ahead and get that ready if you want, deacons. If your faith is never challenged, if your faith never costs you anything, if your faith never forces you to do something that is unnatural or is contrary to your flesh, I would challenge you that you might need to ask yourself some really, really hard questions. You, you may need to go to 2 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, Look, check yourself. Is Christ in you unless indeed you fail the test? If, you, if you're not challenged, if, you, if you've, I'm not saying every day, all day, we don't look for struggle, but if you're never confronted with situations that fight your flesh, that your flesh wants to do something, and the Word specifically says something else, if, you're never, if, if you've never been qu questioned about your faith, if it's never cost you anything, unless you've been saved for about two days, you need to ask yourself some hard questions. I'm not saying look for it. But I'm saying, you know, listen, we have an adversary, the enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking, looking for somebody to devour. He's coming after you. Unless, like we said, unless you're camouflaged. Maybe you're following so far away that the world doesn't know that you're really following. Maybe you're not following closely in his steps. Maybe you're not trying to step. Literally, literally the word picture would be dads or moms. You've been on the beach where you're stepping and your foot makes that imprint and your kids come behind you and they try to take these big steps to step. That's literally the word picture of what he says. Are you following that closely? Because when you follow closely, listen, there'll be persecution. At some point, There'll be persecution. Ask yourself, are you filling up? In what way are you filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Are you extending it? In what ways are you extending it to the very ones that he died to save? That's going to take a verbal proclamation of the gospel. It's going to take a stance that says, I am with Christ and I am denying all other gods. I am singularly with Christ those gods out there are false. Listen to me. When you do that, there will be persecution. If you don't do that, there won't be persecution. As we take these elements, guys, go ahead and start passing them out. Here's the question I want to ask you. Which will we choose? Individually and corporately as a church, will we, will we choose comfort? Or will we choose the cross? Why will we do what we do? In what way will we personally seek to fill up is lacking, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? In what ways will we bear in our bodies the marks of our Savior? As you take these elements, they're going to pass them out. When you're ready, you take them. When I feel like everybody's had time, I'll come up here and close. I want you to contemplate that as you hold that bread and that juice, a remembrance. Again, remembrance that Jesus Christ suffered for your sake. And this is for believers only. If you're not a believer, let it pass by, please. But if you're a believer, as you hold that in your hands, I want you to think about the sufferings of Christ and reflect on your own life.